continue to go through Revelation together. Uh, we're in the church at Sardis this morning. I find the intro really interesting where Jesus says uh, of himself, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We know the seven stars already. We've kind of covered that. That means the seven churches. But the seven spirits of God I find really interesting uh, what that means is not that there are seven Holy Spirits. Uh, remember, we talked earlier about numbers in the book of Revelation. The number seven is significant. What that means is that the perfect, complete, and total Holy Spirit is here with Jesus giving us these words. The omniscient, all-knowing, the all-powerful, the omnipresent Spirit of God in perfect harmony with the Lord Jesus Christ is giving this word to the church at Sardis. And the word that is being given to the church at Sardis in a nutshell is, I know your reputation. You have a really nice reputation, but I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it because... As I sit here as the Trinity with the perfect Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God, and I look out at you, Sardis, I'm not impressed. What I see is not something alive, but what I see is something that is dead. Now, this would have been totally, completely shocking to the church at Sardis because they lived their life constantly hearing good things about themselves. I mean, they lived in a culture of total affirmation. The, the, everyone around them said that they were a model church. The church at Sardis uh, had a lot of money. They probably had a, a nicer church building than the other <laughs> churches in, in Revelation. And they tended to be a little more on the wealthy side as individuals. And so they never stopped hearing the praise and affirmation from others. But Jesus, that's just not how he saw them. In the letter, Jesus is warning them and us through them that this yawning gap between our external uh, life and our internal reality is a problem. And, and the more that that disconnect grows, the more that the, the death is growing inside of us, even though on the outside the veneer is quite beautiful, Jesus says you need to pay attention to this. Why does Jesus warn us? Why does he warn them? Well, he does it because he loves us, because he loves us. Like a father or a mother who sees their child going down a path that is not good for them, what does that mother or father do if they love the child? They don't just affirm the direction of the child. They lovingly lean into that relationship and, have, and seek to have, by God's grace, some heart-to-heart -heart conversations where they can talk to them about the concerns that they have in love about the direction that their life is going with the hopes that the child might then turn back onto the path. So what Jesus is doing here in Sardis is he's doing soul care. When you do soul care with someone, you have to lean into conflict. You have to lean into some uncomfortable situations that are going on in that other person's life. Jesus could... He could lean out. He could decide, you know what? I'm going to go do something else, something that's less difficult. But that's not what Jesus does in this situation. Because he loves them, he doesn't just say, keep on listening to all of the external praise of everyone else. Listen to me. 
so that I can tell you what I see that's going on in your life. He says you need to wake up and repent. Now, it's overwhelming when God confronts us. It's overwhelming. And we can be filled with a sense of um, potentially, we can be tempted toward hopelessness. Because when something is revealed in our lives that we, we know is there, it's been going on, you might call it a habitual sin, or whatever you want to call it, to change that area of our lives is going to be costly and painful. It can feel a bit hopeless, but I'm here to tell you that hopelessness is not the correct response. Why? Because you have the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who is here, who is the one who is telling you about the problem that is going on in your life. And if you have the resurrected Lord Jesus speaking to you, who cares enough for you to tell you what's really going on, who leans in and says, I love you enough to tell you about this thing, then you should not be hopeless. Yes, it might feel a little bit daunting to hear the truth, but with Jesus there is hope because he is the resurrection. Jesus cares about this dead or, they're not quite dead yet, okay? They're not quite there. They're almost dead, but they're not dead. And Jesus cares enough to love them well enough to enter in. He sends them a letter. He sends his angels and ultimately he sent himself for us. So what can we, can we learn here at Trinity Park from this letter to the church at Sardis? First, we're going to see their undeserved reputation. Their undeserved reputation. Then we're going to see the danger of presumption. And then we're going to finally look at the reward of repentance. So undeserved reputation, the danger of presumption, and finally the reward of repentance. So their undeserved reputation, they were, in Jesus' mind, the walking dead. They were the walking dead. They did not see themselves that way, but Jesus saw them this way. Now, it would be easy for us in this letter to begin to make a lot of individual applications of the passage, meaning that you can read this as an individual, and how should you respond to Jesus when he's speaking about things going on in your life, and I think that's an entirely appropriate way to apply this passage, but I think the more important way to apply this passage, to read the passage, is to understand that it's not written to an individual person. It's written to a church. It's written to a particular church. And so the best way, the first way to read the letter is through the lens of what can we learn as a church about what Jesus is saying to Sardis, and then we can make some personal applications as well. So Jesus has sent this letter to one congregation in Sardis, and he has nothing good to say about them. He has not a, a single good thing. There are some people in the church that he says there are some good things going on. But to the church as a whole, he doesn't have anything good to say about them. And his assessment would have been totally surprising for them to hear. In 2014, Tom Rainier who at the time was the president of Lifeway Christian Resources, wrote a highly anticipated book called The Autopsy of a Dead Church. Autopsy of a Dead Church. In his book, based on a ton of research, he describes several factors of what a once alive but now dead church looks like. And here are some of the, the things he identifies. 
uh, these type of churches treat the past as a hero. They're always talking about how great everything used to be. They refuse to adapt to the present needs of the community. They don't see how the community is changing and what the gospel has to do with that. Again, they're living in the past. Uh, the, the mo- they move the focus of the budget inward. I mean, yeah, we're giving our money, but actually we're just giving it to ourselves to spend it in a different way. Um, allowing the Great Commission to become the Great Omission. Do we really have to tell people about Jesus? Do we really have to send missionaries? Is it really that important? Letting the church become preference-driven out of selfishness and personal agendas. The vision of the church becomes an amalgamation of what everybody thinks in some form or fashion. But there's no real vision of where the church is going. The, the tenure of the pastors begins to decrease It's just too hard to stick around anymore. Failing to have regular corporate prayer. We're really smart. We have a lot of good ideas. And at the end of the day, if those ideas don't work, then we'll pray. Having no clear purpose or vision. Our vision becomes we want to exist for longer than we have so far. Uh, Obsessing over church facilities. If we build it and decorate it and keep the maintenance going, they will come. These are how churches, these are some ways churches die according to Tom Rainier. Some churches die because they set themselves so strongly against culture that they, they grow, that what, what holds them together is that they are against what is happening outside of here. So they create a subculture where their need to exist is because they have to exist because they can't exist out there in the world around them. Some churches collapse that way. Other churches collapse in a ditch on the other side of the road. Out of a desire to be relevant within culture, they over-contextualize or lose the message of the gospel to where there's nothing different or so few things different about them and the world around them that it just doesn't matter anymore that they exist as a church. One commentator said this church at Sardis is the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. I had conversations with another senior pastor in our area, not in our denomination, as you'll hear the story, that won't surprise you. He is a friend of mine. Uh, The conversations happened between 2016 and 2017. And, And in this moment, his church was beginning to make some decisions to move very strongly in the direction of embracing a certain cultural agenda Uh, And he was encouraging me to really consider the value of holding on to biblical principles, historical biblical principles in this area. And he warned me, as a friend, from his perspective, that if if I and our church don't essentially keep up with the times and keep up with the movements of our times, then in a generation... He predicted like 25 years that churches like our church will will no longer exist because we have nothing valuable to offer the culture anymore. They were moving in the direction of affirming some things within culture, and he was encouraging me to let go of those things. I told him that I wouldn't, mainly because I believe that the Bible uh, doesn't teach that, and I was going to stand with the scriptures 
And his answers back to me were completely bent around culture and science. He, he didn't want to give me or bother to give me any scriptural justification for the movements that their church was making. I saw his father recently who goes to their church and asked him how things were going. And he told me things are not going well. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for why things are not going well at that church. Um, and I'm, I'm not telling you the particular issue because I want you to see that this could be many conversations between many pastors about many issues. There's different ways to respond to cultural issues. Their church is not doing well. Their church is, is, is shrinking right now. Now, I'm not at all saying that if you stand with the Lord and, and, with, and you stand with the scriptures and you teach the scriptures that you're going to keep on growing. That's not necessarily true. But in the case of our conversation, their church is not growing. And our church is some. What's the point? The point is I, I have to ask the question, when the, when the church over-contextualizes to culture, when the church becomes no different than meeting at IHOP or meeting at Prestonwood or meeting at Bond Park on a Sunday morning, I'm not talking about the building, I'm talking about the content, then what's the point? What ultimately becomes the point of being a church if your teaching is no different than what is being taught wherever it's being taught? If you're not standing with the gospel and the scriptures, then what are you standing on? Why give to a church if they're no different than the world? Why, different, why give to a church if it's no different than giving to yourself ultimately? Because everything that church is about is self-affirmation. Why not just keep your money? Why not? And so I think that if you over-contextualize, you can lose the gospel that way. It can become so similar to the culture that there's nothing, there's nothing worth staying for. There's no gospel power if culture is being preached instead of Christ. If we're more concerned about affirming culture than Christ, then Christ will leave the building and will lose the power of the gospel but I don't want to pat ourselves on the back, even though I think that that stance that our church has taken is the right stance in our culture. Sardis was guilty of self-congratulation, and we can be too. You know, us having five stars on Google right now, you know, whatever. It's just like, it's ridiculous. You know, it's like, it's like what is the church about? What are we here for? What's the point? How are we doing? What would Jesus say if he could write a letter to Trinity Park, well, I don't know exactly, so that's a bit speculative. Um, but I think that Jesus might remind us of a few things that are important in our cultural moment and are important for us as a church in particular. I think he would commend us for certain things, and he might express concern about a few things. You know, Jesus knows the church at Sardis, and he knows us. He knows we're a relatively young church. We're only 13 years old as a church. We have a new building as of late 2021. We have a lot of wonderful, smart people who have a lot of excellent thoughts and ideas and who excel in their careers in general. We have a lot of new people who have joined us recently. We have a number of families who have left us recently in the pandemic for a lot of different reasons. We have a lot of children, like 170 of them on paper between zero and 18. And we are really, truly, and honestly seeking to live out our faith in a culture that is increasingly opposed to the gospel. 
And I think Jesus knows all of those things about us. So what might Jesus say if he could speak to us, even from this passage in particular? I think he might remind us of the only way that we can succeed as a church. I don't, I don't think he would harp on all of the ways that we could fail. There are many. But I think he might harp on the ways that we could succeed. And that is by keeping him and his gospel of grace at the true center of who we are. Not about veneers. I mean, our, you know, our, it's a nice building. But I'm kind of glad that the Lord gave us the building that we have. I mean, I'm glad we can meet here. It's not necessarily a property that you can boast in on the surface. There are much nicer church properties. I think that's a blessing to us. It's a blessing that we have this building. It's a blessing that we can't draw all of our attention to the building either. We need to keep his gospel of grace at the true center of who we are. Where that starts is with the preaching and the teaching. If Andy or I or whoever else is preaching up here isn't preaching the gospel, uh, isn't preaching from the scriptures, then we should hear about it. The session should hear about it, and ultimately, if it becomes a problem, you should find somebody else. Because if the gospel isn't being preached from the pulpit, then you're going to lose everything else. You have to keep the gospel central in how we use our physical and financial resources. Are we investing in? Are we investing our money in the church ultimately just to invest in ourselves and our own self congratulation? Or are we investing our money so that we and our children will be more deeply anchored in the gospel of grace and so that we can send missionaries and evangelists out into the world? Are we going to keep that front and center? Are we going to put our money where the gospel is? We need to keep the gospel central in our relationships. This may be harder than anything else, harder than keeping it in the pulpit, harder than keeping it in the budget. Can we keep the gospel central in our relationships with each other? Can we keep Jesus first as greater than our opinions and desires? Will we hold on to our pride or will we lay our lives down for each other? Is it going to be about in our relationships being seen or valued or right mainly? Or is it going to be about Jesus and being about loving one another and seeing the crucified king glorified in our relationships with each other? I am convinced that we can talk the gospel here at Trinity Park, but can we walk the gospel? Can we walk the gospel? Can we live it out in our daily relationships? It's so much harder than just talking about it. I don't believe that we're close to being dead, but I believe that we could fall into the same trap that many other churches, including the church at Sardis, has fallen into, where we can get so concerned about being external Christians that we, we neglect the internality of the scriptures in our lives. And Jesus cares enough about us to warn us that if, when there's a yawning gap between our external confession and the internal reality of who we are as a church, then we can ultimately lose everything. Once uh, my family and I were hiking, not surprisingly, this is another hiking story, uh, this time we were hiking in this trail called the Subway in Zion National Park. It's a very hard hike. It's a backcountry permit hike. Uh, the whole family did it. It's 15 miles long, and it's really very hard. In the back, the, the, the ultimate destination is you get back to about a half mile where the river has cut out uh, of a, on the side of a mountain, basically what looks like a subway. You, you look like you're in a subway station. Because over years and years, the, the river has cut out 
the subway, but to get back to it and to get back to your car is hard. And we were hiking back on the way back to our car, and to get back there, you actually have to have to hike through the river, up and out of the riverbed, and I had developed terrible blisters on my feet from my keens that were slipping a little bit, and I was having a hard time. I, I think I could have gotten back to my car, I'm not sure, but I kind of sat down to look at what was going on, and this hiker came up to us. Uh, his name was Todd, and he, he literally, this guy was, was just amazing. He's probably 60. He's a solo hiker doing this incredibly hard hike by himself. He had all the gear. He literally, like the Good Samaritan, pulled out all of his moleskins, bandaged up my wounds, and offered to hike. He said, I've done this hike before. Let me hike out with you. And as we're hiking out, we had a couple more miles left, and we started hiking out. And I hi- it's very hard to see where to turn back to the parking lot as you, you have to climb up this mountain to get out of the canyon. And I was just trucking along, you know, about 13 miles in, dehydrated. And as I pass the, the exit ramp to get back to my car, I'm about 50 yards past, and Todd says, you need to take a right here. This is the way back to the car. Now, when Todd said that to me, I could have said, you know, Todd, if you loved me, you would affirm the direction that I'm heading in right now. Because I like leading my family into... Uh, into dehydration and, and great heat and exhaustion. Um, but I didn't, did I? That would have been ludicrous. I, I said, Todd, thank you so much. My gosh, I missed that sign. And we went back to the car, and we were all right. We had some Gatorades waiting there, and it was beautiful. Um, but I feel like that's what Jesus is doing here. We're hiking along. We're trudging along. We're trying to do our best. And Jesus comes in and says, hey, let me tell you, you might want to hang a right this is the way to life. And, and unfortunately with Jesus, we don't always have the same reaction that we do with Todd, with me and Todd on that, that hike. Sometimes we treat Jesus like he's kind of encroaching on our personal space. Like, like why would he call me away from this direction that I'm heading? He's doing it because he loves us. He's doing it because the path we're on is no good. He's doing it because there's life if we can get back to the car. And so... Jesus is saying, hey, Trinity Park, child who I love, there are some ways that you can be redirected if you'll follow me before walking into more trouble. Which leads to the second point, the danger of presumption. The danger of presumption. Jesus says, wake up and repent. So let's do a little bit more of a deep dive into what this church at Sardis was like and what the city was like in Sardis. I find this really interesting. If if you haven't noticed that each of these letters is contextualized to the church, in particular. Jesus doesn't just give bland messages to these churches. He knows the churches, and he gives them particular messages. So Sardis was home to a famous temple. It was its Acropolis uh, to Cybele, Cybele. And that Acropolis was never actually totally finished. So that's one thing that's interesting. You had their Acropolis. You also had their Necropolis, which was more famous than their Acropolis, which was a cemetery of a thousand hills, hundreds of burial mounds, and since Sardis was a little bit high up, these burial mounds were on display, and you could see the burial mounds around Sardis from seven miles away. It was like an elevated cemetery around the city. Sardis also enjoyed an enviable geographic position 
in terms of war. It made it nearly impenetrable. It was surrounded on three sides by sheer cliffs, which made fortifying the city relatively easy. You only had to defend one side, really. It was, it was pretty easy to defend. And so Jesus says to them, like your Acropolis that was never finished, don't think that you're finished yet. You're not finished, church. There's a lot more to do. He's, like that necropolis, which is the most famous thing that that city was known for at the time, you may look at yourselves and see life. I look at you and see a cemetery of a thousand hills. I see a lot going on here that's not good, and I want you to warn, about it, warn you about it. But probably the most poignant point here is about presumption, because Sardis famously, even though it had this incredible, basically impregnable military position, it had been taken twice by outsiders. And the second time that it was taken by the Persians led by Cyrus, history tells us that they had a guard who was supposed to guard a key section of one of the cliffs, and he took the night off. Because he thought to himself, I'm good, I'm guarding a cliff, how bad could it be? Well, one of the best Persian soldiers, soldiers scaled the wall, and it led to a revolt that ended, ended the reign there of those who were ruling in Sardis. Sardis fell within days. Jesus is saying, presumption is not your friend. You have fallen not once, but twice because of presumption. And, and you, Sar Sardis Church, have the same thing going on inside of you. Presume that you're fine. You need to wake up and pay attention. How did he instruct them to fight against the sin of presumption? First of all, he simply says, wake up in verse 2. You have fallen because of military slothfulness before. Don't let your church suffer the same fate. You're slumbering through life Sunday after Sunday. You're barely even there. You're checking your voice, your, your text messages and your Instagram and everything. Like you're not really even here, Jesus says. Maybe he would say that. Maybe that's me. But, um, but this is a message that we need as a church. We need this. To, we, we tend to, as Christians, especially the longer you've been walking with Jesus, you might slumber through your faith. When's the last time you had a, a, a moment in your spiritual life where it felt like you were waking up and being revived to something that was going on? Jesus also says in verse 2, strengthen what remains. There's a focus on their works being incomplete before Jesus. Now, what does that mean? These are not works for salvation. Jesus isn't saying, I need you to work more so that I will love you. It's obvious that he already loves them. That's not why he's saying that you need to work. He's saying, because I love you and because you love me, you should have some different things going on in your life. There's both a quantity and a quality problem going on with your works. But probably the quality problem is a bigger concern because the quality of, of what's going on in your life internally will lead to more quantity probably. You know, when we deal with things that are going on in people's lives and we can deal with surface behavioral issues, but ultimately it's not about behavior, it's about belief. What do they believe? What do they believe to be true? If they believe in Jesus Christ and they remember the gospel, then the works will follow. And then Jesus says, repent. Repent in verse 3. Now, repent is a really important word in the church, so we use it a lot. 
but we use it so much, it can become like one of those words that we just don't even hear anymore. It can become one of those words where you're like, I've heard I need to repent so many times that surely I've done it by now, right? I mean, I've heard it like in every sermon. But repent is actually a very strong word. It's not a weak word. It can, it can feel weak because we use it so much, but it's actually a very strong word. And Jesus says, repent. Now, what does repent mean? Repent means to do a 180. It means you're doing something that leads to death, and you need to turn because of your faith in Christ and do something, do some things that lead to life. You need to change your course, Jesus says. And when Jesus says repent here, I'd say he has a little bit of hot sauce on it. Okay? A little bit of hot sauce on this repent. Because he's saying if you don't repent, there's going to be consequences. He actually says, I will come like a thief in the night. You don't know how much time you have. There's different ways to look at this. You can be like, oh, Jesus, you should give me as much time as I want to repent. I, I just would like, I mean, it feels like you're kind of encroaching on my personal space. Or you could say, wow, so you're saying that you're giving me some time? You're giving, you, you've given me by your grace, you've given me time to repent, but now that Jesus is saying it this way, I think what he's saying is, you need to really take me seriously. I might come, you never know when I'm going to come. Don't keep going on the dusty hot trail. Take a hard right back to life. This church at Sardis is very, very nearly dead. They're not quite dead. This is not a time for Jesus to say, hey, let me direct you back to the self-help section at Barnes & Noble. Pick out your favorite book, the one that most resonates with your own personal experience, and see what you make of it. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, wake up. He's saying, hold fast, keep, keep the faith, strengthen what remains, repent. Remember, why is Jesus saying this to them? Jesus is in the resurrection business. You may think I'm too far gone. Jesus doesn't think so. You're not too far gone. Whatever it is in your life that you feel convicted about, there's no room for hopelessness because you have the hope-giving, resurrected king there with you. He is resurrection and life. And so there is hope. But how? How? Well, the final section is the rewards of repentance, the rewards of repentance. And so Jesus leads us into repentance, and he encourages us towards repentance because he says, uh, this is the way you need to go, and the way of life is going to be so much better than the way of death. The rewards of repentance. This is walking in white, and your names are written in my book. Walking in white, your names are in the book. So there's two ways he encourages us that are beautiful here. First of all, he says in verse 4, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. They are worthy. Now, when we get to Revelation 7, you'll get to see a much more full picture of this, uh, the Christians being clothed in white robes. But being clothed in white, robed in white, is a sign of our justification. Surely it is a sign that, that Jesus gives us this robe in white what is justification? Justification happens when you turn to Christ in conversion because of what Christ has done for you on the cross because he's paid for your sins. Immediately in the sight of God, 
When you confess Christ, when you turn to Christ, then you are robed in white. You're robed in the forgiveness of sins, and you're robed in the righteousness of Christ. This robe represents your justification in Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is saying here is those who are robed in white, those who are clothed in white, will also walk in white. It just makes sense that your justification would be connected to your sanctification. It just makes sense that what Jesus did for you on the cross would be connected to how you live for him in light of the cross in your regular life. Jesus has given us a new record, but going forward, we're not going to be perfect by any means, but we want to strive to honor God in the way that we live our lives with the Lord. Those who are justified by Christ are called to live like it. And remember, the context here is this danger of presumption, okay? Jesus is saying, you are robed in white, so live like it. Implication being, if you're not following me and 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 that's going on in your life, then you need to ask yourself what it looks like to repent and follow me. The second reward is in verse 5. It says, I will never blot his or her name out of the book of life. Now, this is the record book of all who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have trusted Christ by faith, then your name is written in this book. It is written in what's called sometimes the Lamb's Book of Life. But remember, again, the context of what is going on in the church here. And Jesus is saying, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. What's going on here is this is a picture of the security that we have in Jesus. What Jesus is saying, how does Jesus get to write the name? How does he have the right to write our name in the book? Well, he doesn't literally write our names in blood, in his own blood. I'm not talking about him dipping a quill in blood and writing it. But if you actually want to think about it that way, the only way that Jesus has the authority to write our names in this book that gives us eternal life is through his death on the cross. The only power that is greater than our sin is the power of the gospel, the power of his blood, whereby he says, I will never blot your name out of my book. When when our record seems to stand against us, we have a God who says of us, you are mine, I have written you in my book. So that is true if you're in Christ. How can we strengthen our assurance? Because we have a hard time sometimes believing that. Okay, and the confession, the assurance of pardon, also spoke to this today. Jesus also said in Matthew 10, 32, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So there's a relationship between our internal private confession of the gospel and our public external confession of the gospel. You know, some people, when you talk to them about their faith, you say, I'm not going to talk about that with you. That's a private matter. Jesus wouldn't argue, argue with you that it's a private matter. It absolutely should be private. It should be very personal. It should be in your heart. It should impact your, your real life at the core. But it's also not just private. It's also public. It's also public. Jesus expects not just that we would believe with our hearts, but also confess with our lips that he is Lord 
The church at Sardis was a perfect model of inoffensive, inoffensive Christianity. Are you following their playbook? Are you so concerned about what everybody thinks about your faith that you don't ever speak up on behalf of Jesus? You don't live externally in a way that adorns your profession of the gospel of grace. We need to be careful. The point is not to offend people. The point is to live for Christ in an external way, and, and it may be offensive in certain cases to certain people. I think we need to be careful, though. In our day, we can immediately go straight into culture wars. We can go straight, and I don't think Christ is talking about culture wars here. We don't need to denigrate the gospel by believing that the biggest choices that we're going to make today have to do with Target or Disney or Chick-fil-A or Dollywood, or anything like that. I mean, it's incredible to, uh, to me how the commercialization of Christianity has begun to impact what we think are the main forums for our faith. What does it mean, what is the outpost of your faith today as a Christian? Is the main outpost Target, or Disney, or Bucky's or Starbucks, or whatever? It should be a downstream impact. You, you can make your choices, and I don't I don't want to discourage you from making economic choices based on your faith. But the main reason why Jesus died is not where you're going to shop. The main reason Jesus died is so that you will internally and externally live in a way that befits and adorns the gospel of grace. And there's, there's a lot of ways to do that. But I want to make sure that we don't think the main outpost is, is mainly, I, I just drove in today, not to our parking lot. I, I was wondering if this car was going to our parking lot. But it was like all of the decals in the world on the back of this car, including the cross and a fish. And I'm just kind of like, I don't know, I don't know what to do with that, you know? Like for us, I mean, it's not about decals. It's about the cross being absolutely primary and everything else flows downstream from that. And how we fill in the blanks there is a matter of Christian freedom. Where am I going with that? We need to externally live in a way that adorns the gospel. We need to internally confess the gospel of grace in our lives. Jesus writes his name, our names, in his book and promises to never blot it out. He, he signs it in his own blood. And that message should resonate with us so deeply that it impacts our hearts, it impacts our lips, it impacts what we buy, it impacts all kinds of things. Is your name in the book of life? Have you ever confessed Christ in your heart? Have you ever confessed Christ publicly? And that, you don't have to like blog about it or put it on Instagram, but have you ever told anyone else? Have you ever told anybody in the church that you really believe in Christ? Have you ever told anybody else? What is our church's reputation in the eyes of Jesus? Do we have a gap in our church between our external confession and our internal allegiance? Do we have a gap between our internal confession and our external uh, desire and, and, and faithfulness to preach the gospel of grace? I want to make sure at Trinity Park, as we move forward, that we don't become like a church like Sardis, where there's such a gap between what's going on, on the outside and on the inside that Jesus needs to come and warn us more strongly. Let's take the gospel, let's take the warning, let's, let's take a right when Jesus says take a right. Let's make sure we're repenting and believing the gospel of grace. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the gift of your word, Lord. It covers, it covers things that we might not want to see covered. We tend to be drawn to sections of scripture that are not like this one, that are less confrontational. But I'm thankful for your word that gives us all types of exhortation so that we can receive it for our good. So, Father, I pray that today that you would help us, we who are all journeying, and um, those who have confessed you, we're journeying to heaven, we're journeying to you, Lord, and I pray that in this moment, as we're about to be able to enjoy this meal together, Lord, that it would be an opportunity for us to strengthen our faith in you, uh, so that we both externally and internally would be living in a way that befits you, our crucified King. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.